the light bulb. It's such a common part of our everyday lives that it hardly bears thinking about. But the humble light bulb can provide a marker and a startling realization of just how much energy the world uses. Switching on a single 10-watt LED bulb and letting it burn for a full day will consume 0.5 watts of energy. Now, if that single light was to use up all the planet's current annual energy consumption, it would burn for the next 342 million years. To put that into a little bit of context, 342 million years ago, the Earth still had the Pangaea supercontinent, mammals hadn't yet evolved, and the Karoo was going through an ice age. Humanity's annual energy usage of around 23 trillion kilowatt hours is an almost incomprehensible number, as is the 36.3 gigatons of CO2 that's produced in the process. What's far more obvious is the realization that continuing to generate power in the same way we have over the last century is the very definition of unsustainable. This is a large part of the reason why there's been a massive shift in the focus of energy production from coal, gas and oil to the renewable resources that will replace them and help the world evolve in more ways than one. Welcome to Future Impact, an Investec focused radio podcast series that brings you stories of people and organizations contributing to solving South Africa's most pressing sustainability challenges. In this episode, we are talking about renewable energy. However, rather than focusing on what options exist, we're going to explore the current realities of the renewables industry. We'll chat to Investec's Campbell Parry and Nala Renewables CEO, Jasandra Naika, about the pitfalls and possibilities of the energy transition in Africa and across the world. We'll also visit a future-forward development in Guazula Natal built on sustainable energy. And yes, we will talk about ESCOM. My name is Seven Zilinkambule, and this is Investec Future Impact Episode 5. The United Nations Sustainable Development Goal Number 7 was established to ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable and modern energy for all. It targets 2030 as a keystone for an increase in the global percentage of renewable energy and a doubling of the improvement in energy efficiency. Similarly, the Paris Agreement has committed countries across the world to net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. It's against this backdrop that we begin our conversation. And just a spoiler alert, the first half of this episode isn't going to tell you that renewables are the saviour of the South African power grid and the world's energy and CO2 problems. With that said, there's definitely a light at the end of the tunnel, and South Africa could potentially be shining bright. I'm Campbell Perry. I'm a global resources analyst at Investec Wealth. While Campbell agrees that renewables are an indispensable part of future energy production, he's more pragmatic about their rollout and far less bullish than many renewables advocates about their ability to solve the CO2-induced climate crisis on their own. He outlines some of the reasons why. 
I do think that renewables are definitely part of the solution to climate change, but they certainly aren't the only option as we see it. Renewables such as wind and solar suffer from things like intermittency and are fairly inefficient in terms of power generation, and they're also the subject of growing land use issues. So we're at a point where we do regard solar and wind as absolutely vital part of the need to decarbonize, but we're also cognizant of the limitations thereof. Solar and wind technology needs to advance to a point where those forms of energy generation can be regarded as truly baseload power supply. We believe in the end that we're going to need all forms of energy to help us advance towards net zero, particularly given some of the population growth dynamics. And there's no doubt that renewables need to be part of the energy mix, but so too do petroleum, natural gas, things like coal, and even nuclear too. Campbell's rationale behind the requirement of a full spectrum of energy production is based on net zero's interesting conundrum. According to him, building all the infrastructure required to reach the 2050 goal doesn't, ironically, match up with renewable standards. The decarbonization we're all trying to achieve is in fact very fossil fuel intense. It sounds crazy, but we've worked out that every billion dollars in green spending requires an increase in oil demand of something like 50,000 barrels per day. It's an interesting thing. A standard three megawatt wind turbine needs about 140 tons of coking coal and many other fossil fuel based inputs too. And if you add up all of our green spending requirements that are needed to retrofit the world's economy, its buildings, its vehicles, its roads, manufacturing assets, all that kind of thing, we believe there just aren't enough metals around to be able to handle it. So in the end, we need to be a lot more balanced and pragmatic in our approach and embrace intermediate forms of energy provisions. Everything needs to work together to achieve those goals. For Campbell, the inclusion of traditional energy producers doesn't necessarily mean they should continue doing business the way they have. They, too, can be part of the solution. We need to push all our fossil fuel producers, like our coal companies, to produce that coal and fossil fuel in an increasingly responsible way. And I think at the end of the day, when it comes to the subject of net zero, there are going to be some countries that aren't compliant and some countries that will be more compliant and some countries will be more than compliant. But as long as the world, as an average, gets to net zero on balance, then we can consider it a success. Campbell isn't alone in his assessment that the world will still need fossil fuels for the foreseeable future. I'm Jasandra Naika. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Nala Renewables. I've been in the renewable space since 2005 and seen its evolution. I've worked globally in renewables across the US, the UK, the Middle East and South Africa. I don't believe that there is one energy solution out there. I believe in an energy mix. I believe that there is a need to have a variety of different energy sources to create that balance and to ensure that we are able to leverage it in the most sustainable way. Jasandra, who is also a non-executive director on Investec's board, outlines her views on the application of renewable energy sources. What is best is very much a regional response. So it all depends on what feedstocks you have. So where there's a lot of sunlight, you know, obviously it makes sense to have solar, similarly with wind, and where there's a lot of water, hydropower makes sense. That is really a baseload solution. I refer to it as part of the renewable energy mix. It does come with a lot of environmental challenges, but nevertheless, it is an option. And if done in the right way, it does show real promise. 
Similarly, offshore wind to me is the next opportunity that will definitely become mainstream. It is very much mainstream in Europe. We see a lot of it. But soon it will be utilized and implemented in other regions. And if I'm not mistaken, South Africa is thinking about offshore wind along its coastline. Given the scale of the task, the transition from fossil fuels to renewables is not an easy one and isn't just about swapping one energy source to another. There are socioeconomic and geopolitical considerations that come into play, and developing markets like South Africa are more vulnerable to the potential fallout. I don't think merely moving from coal to solar and expecting the renewable sector to be the solution to job creation, to local content, local manufacturing, etc., is the way to go. And I think it's an unfair expectation in terms of what the sector is. So structurally, renewables naturally does not need a lot of people during operations and maintenance. These are self-sustaining assets, whereas a coal-fired power plant needs 200-odd people to operate and maintain it. It's a very different power production facility relative to solar and wind. If we're thinking about how do we solve for the socioeconomic aspects, Honestly, we need to take some of that GDP spend on education that we allocate, which is one of the highest per capita in the world, and use it to reskill people away from coal and into other sectors. And look at how we build an overarching employment strategy for South Africa and not just assume, well, because I'm taking away from coal, renewables needs to provide those jobs. It's not going to happen. Some of the coal-heavy regions of the U.S., for example, what they did is they said, well, you know, we're not going to put renewable facilities here, but maybe because of the size of that country, we could manufacture certain of the components associated with a particular piece of equipment. And, you know, there are certain parts of the value chain in terms of manufacturing that needs to be local in a particular country, and that could create jobs. But to say, you know, I want X percent of local content and, you know, all my manufacturing of solar modules need to be in country, it's never going to happen because then the cost of production of that particular piece of equipment is not going to be as competitive as it would be if you sourced from somewhere else. So I think it's a job problem and we shouldn't be using renewables as a solution to that job problem. You need to look at it differently and you need to look at it in a manner that allows for a sustainable job strategy. And I'm not seeing that coming through. And, you know, what could it be? How do we retool and reskill people? My parents were teachers in South Africa, and I would say you need to rethink the whole academic program in the country because how we educate our youth of today is not really fit for purpose for what the future country needs or the world needs in terms of needs. And I think that's where we need to take a deep step back and say, well, how do we actually solve for this? Campbell unpacks some of the geopolitical aspects. The United Nations is expecting the world population to rise by around 25% through 2050. So by 2050, there's going to be something like 11 billion people on Earth. And as I said earlier, it's almost impossible to think of renewables alone being able to support that growth. And especially as much of it is in Africa and emerging Asia, that type of situation is going to require all forms of energy. And many of those countries can't afford to implement renewable energies at the scale required, given the costs and land use requirements. Geopolitics, this is an important one. Politics is notoriously fickle around the world, particularly in the United States, where that regime can change every four years. China, separately, is a crucial part of the argument because while they make a lot of noise about net zero, which is 
2060 in their case. And they're doing a hell of a lot to commission new renewable power capacity to achieve that goal. They're actually commissioning a lot of new coal-fired power. And our work shows that during the last two years, they've commissioned something like 40 gigawatts of new coal power per year. And besides the political will required for the global energy transition, there's also, of course, a need for finance. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPC as it's known, has been partly set up to look at ways of financing that energy transition. And there needs to be a lot more commitment made to the countries of Africa and emerging Asia. If you want to achieve net zero and you want to pull people along, you need to push hard in the areas where the biggest population growth is going to be. And that's where it's hardest to implement the change that will make the most difference. With that finance in place, however, you can then help eliminate or reduce the use of fossil fuels in most of these countries. It's going to require, I guess, a more thorough rollout of renewable energies, plus in some cases nuclear. Not everywhere, of course. It's not going to be easy in Africa because you have to convince them to replace relatively inefficient cheap and abundant and well-known forms of energy generation like gasoline and diesel with renewables. Hydrogen and ammonia, I think in an African context, are great options, but they're only longer-term options. And it's quite difficult to see cities like Nairobi and Lagos with electric vehicles everywhere or solar and wind assets being erected across the countryside. It's happening, to be sure, but it's happening very slowly. There are concerted efforts by some to do it, but it's very slow. And I think it needs a lot of assistance. And those countries that are able to assist have their own green priorities and agendas, so it's not likely to happen easily or quickly. Undoubtedly, navigating a lot of hurdles, dealing with many more intricacies and expending an untold amount of effort will all come to pass in the run-up to a net zero 2050 with no guarantee of success. However, Every person, business, corporation, organization and government needs to play a part. In Investec's case, one project that's helping usher in the new era of renewables in a bid for energy consciousness is located in KwaZulu-Natal. It may seem a little incongruent to some that a temple of consumption is a viable option for a sustainability project. But the fact is that malls are a South African staple a reality that's not likely to change in the near future. I'm Ian Burns. I've been with the Investec Property Group for the past 12 years. Built on the rolling hills of a 20-hectare sugarcane farm and centered around a 110-year-old fig tree, Conubia Mall services the burgeoning Guazulu-Natal north coast. Unlike most shopping centers in South Africa, Conubia integrates an indoor and outdoor experience for shoppers with open walkways and cross-connecting bridges. But Conubia's crowning glory, both literally and figuratively, is its photovoltaic or PV plant on the center's roof. It is now the largest rooftop-only solar plant in Africa. Based on publicly available online data, the Conubia solar PV plants will rank among the 15 biggest rooftop-only PV plants in the world. In terms of the actual plant itself, it has a DC capacity of 5.25 megawatts and an AC capacity of 4.29 megawatts. It's equivalent of having the power to power 822 suburban homes. Our particular plant is just over 20,000 square meters. That equates to almost three rugby fields. Our particular plant 
consists of 9,505 separate solar panels. The plant provides more than just some impressive stats. This solar plant will produce 40% of our demand. So that makes us 40% less dependent on the national grid, and we've reached capacity. This is a key step in Investec Properties' mission to embrace renewable, low-carbon emission technology across its assets, thereby decreasing the environmental impact on society. If you're enjoying this podcast, Look out for our other episodes in which we explore more about sustainability and responsible investing and discover how the future of investment is already having real-world impact. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate the podcast. It helps to ensure that like-minded listeners can also discover this content. There's no conversation about electricity you can have in South Africa without talking about the National Power Utility ESCOM and its dreaded program of load shedding, the now regularly scheduled and selective shutting down of the power grid when it's under strain. 17,600 megawatts of capacity is unavailable due to breakdowns. Our generation capacity is constrained. Some of our units lose combustion as a result of wet coal. There's about 600 to 700 megawatts that is currently on outage. Breakdowns occurred at Tutuga, Camden and Majuba power stations. At 5 o'clock control tonight, at 10 o'clock we will implement stage 2 load shedding. Any South African will tell you that besides the hassles it causes with the ability to work, drive across town, go shopping, or just about any aspect of life, load shedding is a pure annoyance because of the constant interruption. If you live in South Africa, you'll know all about it, and you would have heard many opinions, some expert some not-so-expert about how government and ESCOM can try and solve the problem. Within those opinions, you would have almost certainly heard of independent power producers, or IPPs, and the role they can potentially play. For Jacandra, it's a solution that's worth exploring. I think that ESCOM, to some extent, stuck in an old-world utility mindset, needs to rethink about how it looks at itself and, and probably will require to be split out in order to ensure that it can be optimized. I always say when you have lemons, try to make lemonade. And here I see it as a time for ESCOM to actually reinvent itself. ESCOM doesn't need to be the sole or majority generator of power in the country. I think it requires a mutual collaboration between ESCOM and IPPs. And that realization of working together is what's ultimately going to solve for this. And, you know, that is that mutual collaboration where the one plus one is going to equal three is important. And it's great to see that mindset coming through as opposed to historically where, you know, ESCOM and the IPP were loggerheads with each other. The inclusion of IPPs would logically introduce renewable energy to the South African grid. The price tag on the building and operation of renewable power projects is lower than fossil fuel options, and the costs continue to drop. As an expat with global experience in the energy sector, Jacandra believes that South Africa is ideally placed when it comes to the future of power generation. 
South Africa is blessed. From a solar resource perspective, it is 25% higher in terms of irradiation relative to that of Spain. And Spain is considered to be one of the solar capitals of the world. And similarly on the wind side, you know, we have excellent wind resources. In the South African context, one would think twice of putting solar in, you know, KZN, even though it's sunny in KZN, because the solar resource coming out of Northern Cape is so much better. Campbell echoes those thoughts. I think we have so much promise in this country. We've got great solar irradiance. We've got great wind. I think hydrogen is a wonderful longer-term option for us, given our status as a key producer of platinum group metals. Platinum group metals are used as catalysts for the production of hydrogen. And there seems to be growing political intent behind not only the renewable energy program, but also allowing companies to privately produce power and the whole renewable energy program has been very professionally managed and if we can just continue that professionalism as we reach towards net zero i think it could be very positive if you'd like to find out more about how hydrogen fits into the renewable energy mix listen to future impact episode one where we talk to kevin eggers of ap ventures a venture capital company with a focus on the hydrogen economy it's a market the Bukhubai project will also tap into. Commissioned by SASOL and the South African government, the development aims to produce 400 kilotons of hydrogen annually. This is a very exciting but very ambitious project. And they're talking about rolling out something like 80 square kilometers of solar and wind capacity. And they're going to link that into a technology called water electrolysis, which uses that energy to produce hydrogen gas so you can store the energy that's produced by renewables, almost as baseload power. And I think that would be an amazing thing. We could export energy to the world, or we could use green energy in this country to do lots of different things with, whether it be as a replacement for energy generation or whether it be for something like mobility. I think hydrogen has immense longer-term potential, and Bukhubai is a very appealing and interesting project. Hydrogen itself, as I said earlier, is a very, very long-term option, and it requires everyone and everything and all technologies to work together, including government and the private sector. What's even more interesting at Bukhubai is that they're considering linking hydrogen in with carbon capture. Carbon capture is a promising technology that's still in its infancy and far from being able to be rolled out at scale yet. But if they can get right by 2050, you'll have the option to capture carbon on a commercial scale, say from Sassel's plants, produce carbon monoxide from it or green carbon monoxide and combine that green carbon monoxide with the green hydrogen that's produced and you effectively have what's called green synthesis gas. And with that, you can produce all the green chemicals that you like. Campbell started out by saying the world needs an energy mix to reach net zero, and he believes that fossil fuels are part of that mix. South Africa stands to benefit there, too. Remember that off our coast we have significant reserves of natural gas, and I point in particular to the discoveries made by Total recently off the south coast, as well as some of the discoveries that Total and Shell have made in southern Namibia, major discoveries of oil and gas. And then there's the Orange River Basin in our west coast waters, which is highly prospective and where work has started there in earnest recently. So if we can get our regulatory backdrop right, we might be able to monetize that gas in the right way. And I'm talking about gas here as a transition fuel, because in the end we require a just transition in this country. In other words, we need to green our economy without job losses. And we can continue to use fossil fuels in a responsible way, but at the same time roll out renewable energy technologies that are needed at greater scale, with, of course, international support. 
conversations around renewables often focus on the positives of solar and wind, just as we have. But as Campbell alluded to earlier, they can suffer from intermittency simply because they're at the mercy of nature. That particular downside requires zero-carbon solutions, two of which have been around for decades. What we've always needed to do is find a technology that allows you to back up that power from wind and solar when the wind isn't blowing and when the sun isn't shining. So if you look at solar and wind at the moment in many parts of the world, when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, they have gas peaker plants which kick in to provide baseload power when the sun isn't shining, for example. I'm a big fan of renewable technologies as a solution for climate change, but it can only fulfill that role 100% when there's technology developed like battery storage and hydrogen, for example, over the long run that can convert those electrons to something that can be stored reliably. The other advantage of battery storage is that it's able to take care of an oversupply. We are able to, based on historic data, understand how wind and solar plants actually operate and at what points in time they generate a certain amount of power. Bringing in a storage or hybrid solution makes a lot of sense. So sometimes the wind can blow really hard, but you may not necessarily need to export all of that to the grid. You could actually store some of it and then sell it into the grid at a point when you're at a low level. Of course, Battery storage is subject to its own controversies due to its requirement of the mining of minerals. Electric vehicles, for example, require six times the amount of rare earth minerals than conventional vehicles. Jacindra believes that shouldn't be a reason to exclude the technology. No matter what you mine, you need to look at how you can do it sustainably. You know, there's a lot of ESG policy that's coming into play now to look at the value chain from a manufacturing perspective. Things that come into play is how sustainable have you been? Are you adhering to the Modern Slavery Act? So you're not using cheap labor in order to produce it. How you're looking at it from an environmental perspective. Mining environmental regulation is actually quite extensive. So there is a lot of rules and regulations in place in terms of how you mine, what you do with the waste, how you remediate, etc. And I think the mining industry is actually a lot more focused on that. And I think that's actually quite key because it's ensuring that they're also over time going to be, I would say, good corporate citizens. The other zero carbon solution is one that Campbell believes shouldn't be ignored, even though it is controversial. I do believe nuclear is an option and you can argue as much as you like about the politics but I think it's very important that we think about nuclear as part of our future energy mix. I think in our integrated resource plan there is provision for nuclear as an energy source. It's a very reliable carbon free and efficient form of baseload energy generation that lasts for 40 years or more 24 hours a day, 7 days a week it's fantastic. These days what's interesting about nuclear is that there's been some major advances in nuclear technology for example Rolls-Royce is developing these new small modular reactors, as they're called, or SMRs. These can be built quickly and buried underground. They can be located close to demand, and they have significantly lower capital cost considerations as well as decommissioning issues at the end of life. There's one final part of the energy conversation that doesn't have to do with CO2 or the environment. It's the business of energy. It incorporates things like commodities used in energy, like lithium carbon, the price of which has skyrocketed 700% in the last 12 months. Energy transition stocks are another part of this market. We asked Campbell for a high-level explanation. 
Those would be stocks that are closely involved with or directly impacted by the energy transition and the world's aspirations to get to net zero in terms of CO2. So, for example, we would consider a company like Vestas, which is a wind company. We would look at something like Solar Edge, which is a solar company providing inverters to the solar industry. And we would look at mining companies because they provide the metals and minerals required by those solar and wind farms. When it comes to investing in energy transition stocks, there are a few things to think about. If you want something longer term, you should consider hydrogen companies because that technology really is only commercially applicable over the longer run. If you are into something nearer term, solar and wind is a very, very mature industry, but you need to ask yourself, if looking at that industry, what competitive advantage does that particular company offer in the industry? It depends very much on what sector of energy transition we're talking about. We've always tended to like the enablers. So, for example, solar and wind farms wouldn't exist without the commodities that mining companies produce. Also, consider the solar industry and consider the inverter companies that make inverters for the solar power. If we're trying to reduce CO2 emissions, we would consider companies in industries like carbon capture, and there are a number of them to consider. So these are all the things we try to look for. We close this episode with a final word from Campbell, who offers a positive, if somewhat pragmatic, outlook on the net zero future. We first have to accept that it will be very difficult, if not impossible for us here in South Africa to reach net zero. But we can definitely make a significant jump towards it if we all work together, as I said earlier, to make sure that all forms of energy generation are allowed to coexist. Our economy just can't afford one or the other. We need everything to work together. It's a case of all hands on deck. We need more renewable energies at scale. We need to resurrect the conversation on nuclear. We mustn't give up on natural gas, which we seem to have plenty of, especially as a cleaner version of coal. And we need to accept that coal has to be an important part of the energy mix for some time. And then in the end, hydrogen is a very viable but somewhat longer-term option for us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Investec Focus Radio's Future Impact. In our next episode... We'll tackle a topic that exposes the dark underbelly of society, human trafficking. A group of Thai girls were brought over by a group of South African and Brazilian men and kept in a mansion here in Bryanston. And they actually held their passports and then they would sort of rent them out to the various strip clubs and brothels, etc. in the sort of Santon and Joburg area. If you're not yet subscribed, you can find us by searching for Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts. Please don't forget to rate us if you've enjoyed this conversation. Until next time, farewell from me, Sevenzilin Gambuli, and the Focus Radio team. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of Investec Wealth and Investment and should not be taken as advice, guidance or recommendations. Investec Wealth and Investment, a division of Investec Securities Proprietary Limited, member of the JSE Equity, Equity Derivatives, Currency Derivatives, Bond Derivatives and Interest Rate Derivatives Markets, an authorized financial services provider and a registered credit provider.